bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning, for the ability to gather together this way in a local assembly that you ordained to our benefit and to your glory from eternity past. Thank you for reminding us of all the little things that make up your kingdom, Father, and giving us the insight with the help of your Holy Spirit to see many of the things that await all of us in eternity. Thank you also for the fellowship, for as your word states, Matthew 18, 20, for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Father, we pray for those not able to be with us this morning, that their hearts be encouraged by our prayers. And we also pray for those still struggling with sin, that they be refreshed with truth. We ask that you bless this morning's message. May it be edifying for our souls, and may it challenge each of us as we hear your calling upon our lives. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, this morning's message, obviously a continuation, part 18 of the Gospel, Salvation and Sanctification. Fantastic series, uh, pivotal, foundational series that all of us ought to revisit from time to time, especially Last Sunday and last Thursday's messages, those are do-overs for everyone, including myself, uh, which I have done, by the way. And I teach these lessons, and I listen to them after. The Gospel of Jesus Christ has been under attack since the fall in the Garden. For example, that's what we see in Cain's failure, a rejection of grace. God was pleased with Abel because he was grace-oriented. His good work of a blood sacrifice being the proof of his faith in God. You see, Cain lived by a different gospel, one that included human works, which are the antithesis of grace. Millennia later, we see Paul fighting the same battle, though more intricately fought, it would seem. Go to Galatians 1.3. Obviously, more details to it. We don't get a lot of details in the Genesis account way back then, but we do in the New Testament. So the battle is more open, more intricately fought, so to speak. Galatians one three. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins so that He might rescue us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forevermore. Amen. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you. We're going to talk about calling this morning, as well as grace. I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting Him who called you 
by the grace of Christ for a different, and that's that Greek word we've studied in the past, heteros. It means a counterfeit. It looks similar, but it's different. For a different gospel, which is really not another, only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we, or an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. We have quite a statement there, my friends. Teach a perverted gospel and you are to be accursed. That's Scripture, not Pastor Ed. Teach a perverted gospel, a different gospel, looks a lot like the true gospel, and you are to be accursed. So it's quite a thing to think about, folks. In any case, as Solomon would say up here on the board in Ecclesiastes 1.9, There's nothing new under the sun. So these attacks that we are persevering under, that we're learning about, that we're pushing through, these are not new. The gospel of Jesus Christ has been under attack since the fall in the garden. For example, Cain rejected grace, as did the religious Jews during Paul's time, as do legalistic folks today. It's not a novel concept that the gospel proper, the fullness of it, is under attack. Again, the gospel of Jesus Christ has been under attack since the fall in the garden. Cain rejected grace, as did the religious Jews during Paul's time, as do legalistic folks today. Everyone's trying to add works, in other words. Can I do something for all of this good work? The answer is no. You will do good works, but it will be by the grace of God. It's impossible for anyone to reject grace and be saved. The entire premise of salvation is that it is performed by grace. The Word, you know, the Lord Jesus, is grace. Go to John 1.14. John 1.14 So if we think about rejecting grace, then we must reject Him because He is full of grace and truth. John 1.14 John 1.14 And the Word, the Logos, this is Christ Himself, the Son of God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we saw His glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. So to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must first understand that He is the very manifestation of grace. When we accept Him for who He is, we are accepting grace manifest. In a man. So to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, you must first understand that he is the very 
manifestation of grace, full of grace and truth. In this sense, since Jesus calls his own, that's what a good shepherd does, since Jesus calls his own, we might rightly say this then, as our pivotal point this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling to grace. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling to grace for the manifestation of grace to call you to himself is basically the same thing as what's on the board. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling then to grace. And as we noted through the usage of the parable of the boat on Thursday, I started that on last Sunday, this calling meets with the human heart in individuals. This calling meets with what? The human heart. Some, when they hear the call, will answer, Yes, yes, Lord, and be saved. These are the ones with the humble hearts. These are the ones with the soil that will bear fruit, some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty, to borrow from Matthew 13.23. However, since the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, there are few who find it, Matthew 7.14. This means that when God makes the call to grace, some, when they hear it, will answer, No, no and be lost forever. These are the ones with the arrogant hearts. These are the ones with the soil that will not bear fruit in Matthew 13. Again, the point this morning that we're going to focus on is the gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling to grace. Paul speaks volumes regarding what it means to be called to grace. It takes on a a higher meaning in the New Testament. Um, And Paul, therefore, speaks volumes regarding what it means to be called, to be the called. It takes on a different notion even. So concentrate for a moment. For starters, God will never propose an activity without enabling the outcome by grace. God will never propose an activity To you. Make it personal. Because that's what it is. And if that's not what we've learned, I don't know if we've learned anything. This entire thing, revisiting the gospel, it's about, it's very personal. And Jesus Christ, in the gospels, the books after the name, so to speak, says, follow me. Follow me. He's talking about himself. God gave his only begotten son So that those that believe in who? Him. Not just the artifacts. Not just the forensic details. Not just this, this, and this. But Him. Those who place their trust in Him. He's a person, remember. That's the kind of thing that we've learned. So God will never propose an activity without enabling the outcome by grace. In other words... As we noted in great detail on Thursday evening, there exists a paradox. And though it's not really a paradox for God, it really is a paradox or seeming 
paradox from man. There exists a paradox. In one sense, we see activity verbs in Scripture that involve man. But in another sense, we see that any good work is done by grace, lest any man should boast. The perspective, then, is simple. The Creator enables His creatures as instruments of righteousness, Romans 6, to do His good works. That's the reconciliation of the so-called paradox. That the same God that created all of us and then saved us is the same one that uses us as instruments of righteousness, as slaves of righteousness, doulos, remember, to do His good works. So it's perfectly legitimate, and you shouldn't have any reservations in your soul, understanding that you really will do good things. You really will. Simply stated up here on the board, Ephesians 2.10, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. That's what it means to be an instrument of righteousness. And all of this was ordained before mankind was even put on planet Earth. (laughs) For we are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. In the New Testament, the concept of being called is generally applied to those who in eternity past were elected by God to salvation. So being a called person, typically in the New Testament, is someone that's been elected. Like Jesus himself intimated up here on the board. I mean, how does this work? Well, this is how it works. John 10, 27 to 28, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. That's how it works. And I give them, or I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. Those are the called in Christ. And these are facts that God knew before you were even born. He knew that you would hear your Lord's, your great shepherd's voice, and you would follow him. He knew it. So when Jesus said this, he knew it. My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they what? They follow me. And I give eternal life to them, and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. What is Jesus saying here? It's simple. Those whom he calls... They follow him. I don't wish to belabor the word called here, as this is not a word study of sorts, and the doctrine of calling is extensive. What the Spirit's saying here is that the gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling to grace. Those who have heard it with a humble heart, they are the receivers of God's grace at salvation 
and beyond. They are the ones who have met his desires, 1 Timothy 2.4, regarding salvation. They are the ones that have met his purpose. Go to Romans 8.28. So who are the called? They're the ones with the humble heart. They are the receivers of God's grace at salvation and beyond. They are the ones who have met his desires in 1 Timothy 2.4 regarding salvation. And they are the ones that have met his purpose even. And you have to say, well, what does that mean? Does that mean I have to, you know, do this and that and exert all? No. Philippians 1.6 says he will complete this thing. And that's the, that's the so-called human paradox is people get sort of tied up. Well, how much do I exert and how much do I not exert? How about go to him in prayer and figure out what doors are open at what time? How about depend on him? How about change your entire perspective from a works program to a grace program? How about that? And that's what he wants in you. And the greater you understand those salvation artifacts, the better off you will be in time and the freer you'll be. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So you know that this is a verse specifically for you if you're a believer. If you're a believer, you have been called according to His purpose. And in that sense, all things will work together for good. To date, between last Sunday's message and Thursday evening's message, the Spirit's given us the capstones, so to speak, to our series here on the gospel and salvation. We'll have to see how much of sanctification He wants to address as we press on. But if you've been paying attention, He's been addressing it all along. There are so many things that I think I'm very confident that those of you who are truly earnest in learning these facets, these deeper aspects of the gospel and the spiritual life, etc., you're going to figure out that a lot of the things that you were plagued by, maybe, things that when you read Scripture didn't totally make sense, uh, doctrines that you had just a little bit off here and a little bit off there that didn't seem to reconcile with one another. Once you put the gospel as the centerpiece and Christ, not just the forensic details, not the hyper-doctrinalization of anything, including the Spirit's work versus good works versus all that kind of thing, but rather putting Christ as the centerpiece, you're going to realize that there's a whole lot of freedom in that exercise. And you're not going to be You're not dumbing down the gospel. Actually, you're amplifying it up. You're edifying it up. It's not Anybody here want to say that we haven't covered the same amount of Scripture at any lesson? Heck, I have a hard time fitting Sunday lessons into an hour. They've been running almost an hour and a half. Have you noticed? You know why? Because there's so much glory in the Word of God. It's hard to stop. Truth be told, it's hard to stop. That's a beautiful thing. So everything's opening up. I had a principle on the board on Thursday that once you understand the gospel proper and it's situated correctly in your soul, the rest of the Bible explodes with new meaning and vigor. And you're excited about it. You're not timid 
as Paul would tell Timothy, don't be timid about this. You're not in a spirit of timidity, but in power. You'll, be able, you'll now be able to go to the Scripture for yourself and be elated to do so, not hesitant. Oh, you know, I'm not smart enough. I don't have a PhD. I'm not this. I don't have this gift. I don't have that. No. The only reason you may have had that in your soul is because you were confused by false doctrines. Or maybe you didn't have the gospel totally right. Maybe it was dispensationalized out or hyperdoctrinalized into a corner. And there's no freedom in doing that to him. So the Spirit's been giving us these capstones. If you haven't heard Thursday evening's message yet, please take the time to go and listen to it. I had someone after service on Thursday come into my office almost in tears and tell me it was everything to them. That freedom was or had beset them in a whole new way. And they weren't alone. So if you didn't catch Thursdays, please take the time to do it. Even I listened to it again and learned new things. And just as a side note, from now on, even if I don't say it, when I say the words, the gospel, I mean, with full emphasis, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So I'd encourage you to all think this way as well up here on the board. Remembering the person. You see, if you just say the gospel, it can happen that it becomes sterile, that it becomes about doctrines and judicial details and this kind of thing. And it's not even about the person anymore. It's about knowledge. When we know that Jesus Christ, gee, he didn't even present half of what Paul presented in his epistles on the details, the judicial details of what actually happens at salvation. So maybe, just maybe, those are details left to the believers after salvation. So we have to remember the person. We have to situate the person as the centerpiece when we talk about the gospel. Instead of saying just the gospel, try disciplining yourself to say the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is imperative in any case of expression that the Lord and Savior, the person and His work, not be excluded in your thoughts That's what I believe happens. People are so bent on the forensic details of the gospel that they've made that the gospel when it's not. There's so many spiritually appraised things that an unbeliever cannot even understand. So what are you doing arguing with an unbeliever over those things that are actually meant for believers to be reassured or encouraged or built up in the grace and knowledge of God? What are you doing besides excluding the person from the conversation? So instead of saying the gospel, try disciplining yourself to say the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
It is imperative in any case of expression that the Lord and Savior, the person and his work, not be excluded in your thoughts. I was thinking about this and how Satan would love nothing more than for us to drop the Jesus Christ part. Whether verbally, but more importantly, in your own soul. Satan would love it if that happened in your soul, that it was no longer the gospel of Jesus Christ, but just the gospel. Do you understand what I'm getting at? When we belittle the person, we lose the gospel. When we lose sight of the gospel, we lose sight of grace. We are called to grace. And that's what Paul was dealing with in Galatians 1. That's why he started out that way. Guess who was there in Galatians? The Judaizers. No, no, it's, it's faith plus works. You know, you're saved by works. And he's like, this is ridiculous. And what happened was there was an infiltration. There was a certain pressure from without the church. And people that were actually believers started to buy into some of the lies and get confused. Well, that can happen to any of us at any point in time, I believe, if you lose sight of the person. If you just stop focusing on all the details. Listen to me, I've had long conversations with very learned individuals. And then at the end of it, I'm like, why did we just have that conversation? Should we even be having that conversation? What are we arguing about anyways? Honest to truth, what are we, what are we arguing about? Where was Jesus Christ in this conversation? And you might be surprised when you look back what you see in hindsight. When we belittle the person, we lose the gospel. When we lose sight of the gospel, we lose sight of grace. Yet we are called to grace. Again, Romans 8, 28. And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. At salvation, ask yourselves, at salvation, is it fair to assume that we know all the details of our calling? Is it fair to assume that? Have you not learned anything in the past two months about the gospel? About what it means to be called? What happened when you got in the boat? Because you did. But yet you were saved first. So those details couldn't have been necessary for your salvation. Fair enough? But yet people like to argue about those details and to ad nauseum. So at, at salvation, is it fair to assume we know all the details of our calling? No. How could we? For they are spiritually appraised, 1 Corinthians 2.14. However, as believers purposed by God, we are to enjoy the myriad forensic details regarding all that has happened at salvation. I like hearing about that. I'm reassured by it, aren't you? I love hearing. I can't, how, can you ever, how can it ever get old in your soul what He's done for you at salvation? How could that possibly ever get old? I love hearing about that. It's like the, the best rerun of anything, right? It's like owning a DVD that you've watched like a bazillion times. It's like that. So believers are purposed by God, and we have that gift of enjoying myriad forensic details, looking back at what happened at salvation and being even more encouraged. You mean that happened too? 
Yeah. How many people at salvation knew at that moment in time, literally, at that moment in time, they were filled with God, the Holy Spirit, and he knew everything about God's, the Holy Spirit's ministry in their life moving forward? Who knew that? Nobody. Nobody. Who knew about 1 Peter 1.7, the proof of your faith? Who knew about that kind of thing? God, the Holy Spirit did, but you didn't. You have to actually live the spiritual life to have any proof to point back to so that your faith is amplified, correct? That's the machine called sanctification. You don't know anything about that. Frankly, you're an idiot at salvation, but a grateful one. Hopefully. Right? No, I can say that because the Bible says that you will be. And if you're not, go back to our last month's lessons. So we are purposed by God. This is precisely in order with God's desires, for we are saved, and we come to a greater knowledge of what that even means. 1 Timothy 2, 3-4, This is good and acceptable in the sight of God, our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. We never stop learning. That's why you're here, I'm assuming, not just for the coffee and the cream-filled what were those things? My mother's trying to get me to eat them. I'm trying to lose a little weight. And she's like, hey, do you want to try one of these? I'm like, ma, just give me some duct tape and I'll strap it right here in my hip. It's where it's going anyways. <laughs> so this is God's will that we're not just saved, but also we're going to be able to look Back at all the forensic details. Details we didn't have to know at salvation. Details that we certainly do find in, the, in Scripture. And be encouraged, increasingly so. In our running boat analogy, we noted that once we are in the boat, God opens our eyes to what just happened and all that He has accomplished in saving us. Our eyes begin opening up to those things. So think of it along another, but just as potent, analogy. Consider the fact that a believer is married to Christ. And I use the Jewish marriage analogy because that's what it stems from. And if you were betrothed, you're just betrothed. We don't. The wedding ceremony happens obviously after the rapture, but in Jewish ceremony, if you were betrothed, it was pretty much the same thing as being married. The ceremony just didn't happen yet. So, think of yourself as being married to Christ, even though not technically yet. And consider the fact that a believer at salvation has become the bride or a member of the bride of Christ. It's very personal. I mean, who marries somebody they don't know? Unless you did, like, mail order, which I wouldn't recommend. I'm saying People are like, ah, I guess so. But consider the fact that a believer at salvation has become the bride of Christ. And just like in a secular marriage, do we know, think about it, do we know everything there is to know about our spouses when we say, I do? No, of course not. I mean, some would argue, I wish I had. Turned out to be problematic. Didn't know that about you. 
Just saying. But it is a fair statement. I mean, we don't know everything about our spouses when we get married. That, um, that funniness, that's certainly not the case with Jesus Christ because he's perfect. But the point is that we didn't know everything that our husband, capital H, did for us to save us, nor his Father in heaven, nor his Holy Spirit. Is that fair to say we knew everything about our, quote, spouse when he saved us? No, we didn't, and that's fine. But we did say, I do. These are all things that we get to enjoy. When, the, when you have the perfect husband, these are the things that you get to enjoy as we grow in the grace and knowledge of him. Jesus wants us to keep our eyes focused inside the boat, living in the gospel reality. Hold your thumb there. Peter addresses this too. Go to 2 Peter 3.17. 2 Peter 3.17. Again, the Spirit this morning is just encouraging you that it's the way that is ordained by God that once you're in the boat, you didn't know everything about your husband when you got in the boat. You just trusted him. said, I trust you with my life, that you're my Lord and Savior. And then you get to learn more and more about him. And he's perfect, so it's always good. That's the beauty of coming to class. You, therefore, beloved... Knowing this beforehand, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness, but grow. There's an activity there. It means you're, you're you know, enlarged tomorrow as opposed to today, to grow. There's a progress, sanctification. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. So Peter was saying the same thing. You don't know everything about there is to know about him. And that's the beauty. I don't understand how people... I don't want to go. I'll, I'll end up somewhere else. But I don't understand how people live nowadays without the Lord. Honest to goodness. I, I don't understand it at all. I don't see what, what there is to look forward to in the morning. Honestly, what do you look forward to? What? That, that person you married that you really didn't know? What are you looking for? What, what's, what's greater than Christ, in other words? Because people always let us down. So if it's not today, it's tomorrow. Right? So if you don't have Christ, what do you have? This decrepit person? That decrepit person? I don't mean to belittle people, because people can show Christ. Don't get me wrong. But you know what I'm saying. Compared to Christ? <laughs> So if you don't have Christ, I mean, come on. I don't know. It's funny how much time people will spend getting to know their girlfriends and boyfriends and spouses and all this stuff. And there's inevitable frustration in that endeavor, which is fine. That's between them and the Lord. Keep going with it, whatever. But they won't actually learn about the Lord. It's it's amazing what people will do instead of 
seeking the Lord. That's why Paul said in, uh, what is it, 1 Corinthians 7, when he talked about being single versus married. He said, listen, if you're single, you get to spend all of your time focused on a perfect man, not some jackass. <laughs> just saying, Paul says, just saying. I'm loving life. feel bad for you guys that are married. I'm just saying. I wish maybe sometimes you could all be like me and all this stuff you're dealing with, distracts you from the Lord. I'm not saying everybody, all right, don't be running off. I need to be single. Don't be doing that. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying, I'm amplifying the fact that when you're married to a perfect man, the perfect man, it's all good, it's all upside. Anyways. Back to our pivotal principle this morning. The gospel of Jesus Christ is a calling to grace. So let's continue where we left off. Go back to Romans 8.28. I did remember to have you hold your thumb this time, so I'm pretty proud of myself. (laughs) These are the little blessings I get. Some people are like, prize is said. Whatever. You know what I mean? Oh, mighty ones. Romans 8.28 And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. So you're called to grace. That's the beauty of it. You enter into a grace plan, so to speak. And it's all by grace. Paul says, I am what I am by the grace of God. God's purpose for his elect, is that they get into the boat, be saved, and continue to bring glory to him. That's his purpose. That's the purpose of the called, of the elect. Get in the boat, and we're going to bring glory to me. And I'm going to use you as an instrument of righteousness. So don't shy away from the activities. Don't let the morons on the side teaching some kind of weird gospel tell you that you can't do it because then it's a works. That's garbage too. You are called according to his purpose. Reflect for a moment. I was thinking about, you know, because there's some people who get real, they can get down on themselves even, and that's not what is meant by these lessons either. Well, I can't point to any works, you know. It's like I don't have to. Look, let me give you some encouragement. Your calling to grace Do you realize that the simple fact of you having a life of gratitude brings glory to God? How about that? God sees the heart. Who cares if anybody else can see your fruit? Who cares? Is there fruit visible? Sure, Jesus Christ said himself, you shall know them by their fruit. Blah, 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 blah. But God sees the heart. And if you have a grateful heart, that's good fruit. So do you realize that the simple fact of you having a life of gratitude brings glory to God? Go to 1 Thessalonians 5, 16. Not that I have absolute favorites, but this one I really, I just absolutely love, love, love this passage. These three verses are, these are the kind, I don't have tattoos. I don't have any plan of getting them. Because they always sag and then you can't tell what they're doing anyways. I had a buddy of mine, he had 
Snoopy right here, and he was a workout guy. And he had Snoopy right here in his peck. And at the time, it was like, you know, it was like Snoopy's like. But then he got old, and now I call him Droopy. He just looks like he's melting. Just like, I'm like, dude, you've got to keep working out because Snoopy's not Snoopy anymore. He's droopy. Anyways, if, you were gonna, if I was going to get like a tattoo, I'd probably get something like this somewhere tattooed on my body. 1 Thessalonians 5.16, Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. Do you want to know what his will is? What did it just say? This is God's will. It's one sentence. It's one complete thought. What's his will? What is a fundamental will of his as a believer? What? Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and give thanks in everything. For this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus. How about that? Is that complicated? No. It's not complicated. You know, fundamentally what he's saying is, uh, okay, you're in the boat. You won. You're going. You're in the boat. You didn't earn it and deserve it. You should be going to hell. But you got in the boat by the grace of God. I mean, if you just remember that in the morning, that'll get you rightly situated. Rejoice always. Even if, Look, if that means you have to pray, praying without ceasing means you pray before you get out of bed in the morning, then do it. Then do it. And everything, give thanks. So while you're praying, say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for this life that I don't even deserve. Thank you for being patient and giving me the time and the space to learn more about you. Forgive me a church. Forgive me all of this, everything that's going on this morning. Forgive me fellowship with, with other believers. Thank you for the encouragement. Thanks. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, and everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. So you're calling to grace. Do you realize that the simple fact of you having a life of gratitude brings glory to God? And again, when you read that, consider it as a single sentence and a single thought, because that's what it is. Compare that with why you might be so grateful. Up here on the board, Philippians 4, 19 and 20. And my God will supply all your needs. Not wants. I've taught in depth on this in the past. Not wants. Wants are not needs. Wants are nice to have. They're not needs. I need fruity pebbles. Well, maybe you have what we used to have in college. The cheap version. Fruit scoops. They looked like Fruity Pebbles, but they weren't Fruity Pebbles. But you know what? We were eating. We got our nutrition for the day, kind of. <laughs> right? Kind of. Do you know what I'm saying? Those are, those are wants, not needs. He says he'll supply all your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. Now to our God and Father be the glory forever and ever. Amen. How about just being grateful for that? 
I'm looking around. Yep. Almost everybody, save a few, have cups in front of them with name brands on them. You don't have to have that. You don't. You don't have to have Dunkin' Donuts or Coke or vitamin water. Or everybody's like. <laughs> I wonder about the ones with the undistinguishable cups. What's in there? So then I walk them. I watch them as they walk. I'm like, are they walking straight line? It's kind of early. It's 5 o'clock somewhere. How about just being grateful for God meeting your needs? Bright lights, gorgeous church, well-clothed. You ate, I'm assuming, unless you chose not to, most of you ate breakfast this morning. Uh, you got heat, you got air condition, you got fan, you got everything. You got couches back there, leather couches. I mean, come on. People are like, fuck. So this is what I need. I need this in the morning. <laughs> really? Watch well, you a little brat. These are my needs. No, they're not. How about just be grateful for everything that he's done for you? That he, the fact that he supplies all, really all your needs. And when you do, this is the point the Spirit's making, when you're grateful for just the baseline things, that brings glory to God. Because you're attributing it to grace. And that's grace orientation. And that was his purpose for you. You were called to grace. And the way you get back to grace is going right to the gospel. The only thing that really matters in life is that you're saved. This I have, it's like Paul said, I just want to know him and him crucified. Really, the only thing that matters in your life, I know, I know people, you don't understand. You don't understand. I got bills to pay, I got this. You're saved. You don't understand. My kid is a brat. So, whip his, whip his behind. I'm going to say another word. My dog chewed up my pillows. Well, discipline it then. Do whatever it takes. I don't know. You don't, those aren't problems. Those aren't problems. Unbelievers have a problem. You don't have problems anymore. You have distractions, many of which you chose to put in your life. Okay, see how I digress? See? But many of you chose to put those things in your life. My spouse is such a jerk. Oh, God. Someone say I do for you? Was there like a ventriloquist over there in the corner? And you're like... I was second guessing. I go, okay, I'll just go with it. You know, honeymoon's already paid for anyway, so might as well. You know, you didn't need even to be married. Technically, you didn't need anything. I'm just saying. There's just no way for you to realize how very much God has done for you, and has had in store for you since before you were even born. 1 Corinthians 2.9, just as written, there are things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered into the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love him. The point the Spirit's making here is that there are many details that we learn about once we are in the boat, once we are saved, and they are, truth be told, forensic details. 
And all I mean by using that particular word, forensic, is that there are details that you were, frankly, incapable of knowing until you were saved. Incapable. Therefore, when it comes to the gospel of Jesus Christ, we aren't to overcomplicate it with all the forensic details of salvation. Even worse, up here on the board, we aren't to supplant the person and his work for the forensic details of salvation, things left for the believer to learn and appreciate over time through sanctification by grace. We aren't to supplant the person and his work for the forensic details of salvation in our presentation of the gospel. It's okay to compliment Jesus Christ, but he remains the centerpiece. He remains the centerpiece. And as if we go back a couple of months now, if we travel back the way this series started, there's just too many gospels out there that just sling out Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. They say, that's it. Just believe these facts about this guy, and you're saved. But there's no measuring, there's no consideration, there's no nothing that goes on. And so people are content in believing a hacked gospel because to them it just means they go to heaven. And we've been through all this. Jesus Christ has to be the centerpiece. Now, being the centerpiece, it behooves us to understand what Jesus Christ had to say about his own gospel. If he made certain statements, we must accept them as gold refined by fire. Revelation 3.18, how about that? Being the centerpiece, it behooves us to understand what Jesus Christ had to say about his own gospel. If he made certain... I mean, for those of you with red letters, or for those of you who can see him, unlike Michael who actually can't see him. That's, that's right. right. We talked about that. right? He's like, I don't need red letters. I just, I just, fused. What was I saying? Oh, there's a lot of, for those of you who can see red letters, sorry, Michael, there are a lot of red letters in the Bible. You know why? Because there was a lot that the Holy Spirit wanted to capture about the words that came out of Jesus Christ's mouth specifically regarding, guess what? The gospel. And he didn't use all the fancy language. He didn't use the judicial. There's nothing wrong with this. Don't get me wrong. Don't misquote me. He didn't use complex language. He bounced kids on his knee. He said, I'm the Savior. It's me. Do you trust me? So being the centerpiece, it behooves us to understand what Jesus Christ had to say about his own gospel. If he made certain statements, we must accept them as gold refined by fire. I have come to the conclusion that a gospel that is void of the principles found in the books in the New Testament that actually bear the name gospels is terribly lacking. A gospel that is void of the principles found in the books in the New Testament that actually bear the name gospels, you know, the first four, is terribly lacking. In other words, 
I'm not saying that we must regurgitate Jesus' words in order to get the gospel presentation correct. What I am saying is this, up here on the board, a gospel that somehow excludes Jesus Christ's own thoughts on the gospel after his own name cannot be the true gospel. It's perplexing why anyone would even desire to do such a thing. Jesus Christ, yes or no, had an awful lot to say about the gospel. If the gospel you're used to presenting is minus his own thoughts, you're missing something. And he's the one who said things like, deny yourself, pick up your cross, or else you can't follow me. In other words, these are the conditions of getting in the boat. Yet in all fairness, to the point on the board, I did it myself for a time, fine. As did many of you, as I'm told. I've had well-established communicators of the Word of God tell me that they were fearful of including Jesus Christ's own language in the presentation of the Gospel. This is why the Spirit's been stressing Jesus Christ for two months now, not just Justification by faith, which some have called the complete gospel. Ask yourselves, how could the facts regarding justification by faith, I would argue that most of you don't even know them. I think you know what they are. I think you know what it is as a concept, but you don't know all the details of justification by faith. How could the facts regarding justification by faith be all of the good news about Jesus. How? Honest to goodness, how how would that work? Jesus didn't even talk about all those details. Paul was often forced to in defense of the gospel. It's silly to even suggest. To our previous point, again... Remembering the person, instead of saying the gospel, try disciplining yourself to say the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is imperative that in any case of expression that the Lord and Savior, the person and his work, not be excluded in your thoughts. When we belittle the person, we lose the gospel. When we lose sight of the gospel, we lose sight of grace. We are called to grace. So just to quickly recap and close out our running boat analogy. And someone suggested that I make a booklet out of it, and I might do just that. Trusting our personal Savior, simply trusting the facts that a boat was built and that you can attest to its existence is not what is going to motivate you to get into the boat and be saved. Only trust in the person and his work will do that. It's the same with the gospel. You can see all the artifacts all day long. Unbelievers see them, demons see it. I mean, demons listen, Demons saw the cross. They saw the cross. There were other people that were present at the cross that saw the cross and still weren't saved. So you didn't know everything there is to know about Jesus Christ. Everything. 
and still not be saved. You have to trust in the person and his work to be saved. You don't trust just in the facts. You trust in the person and his work to be saved. And that's the same, obviously, with the gospel. So up here on the board, Jesus Christ, the builder in the story, says to us, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And who's he focusing on? Me, he says. This is me. That is analogous to the invitation to get into the boat and be saved. Now, because of the narrow gate, Jesus wants to be forthright about the conditions of the gospel. He wants to be up front, just like you should be up front. We shouldn't go out and try to water down the gospel to try to, you know, entice people in the boat, like trick them, kind of, like that kind of a thing, like a bait-and-switch type thing. Jesus wasn't a bait-and-switcher. That's a sales technique, right? A cheap one. He says, I want you to know everything there is to know up front about what it means. That's part of the counting the cost thing, right? So what he really did not want are any false pretenses. And you shouldn't want that for anyone you're trying to evangelize. You shouldn't want any false pretenses. Jesus was very upfront when he evangelized people. He never desired to save someone who didn't understand what salvation meant. He didn't want anyone jumping into the boat under false pretenses that would later on find out they weren't saved. Matthew 7, 23. He didn't want that. And you shouldn't want that. You should be very upfront and say, this is what it means. You're going to have to let go. You will let go. Are you okay with the idea that you're going to lose your attachments to the self-life? Are you okay with that idea? No. Then go away, rich ruler. Jesus Christ said that's why it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than to get a rich man to him. Why? They don't want to give up the self-life. It doesn't have to be just money. I mean, there's all kinds of things that, you know, people always have their little favorites, too. But the worst thing we can do is tell somebody you get to keep this or that and go through the narrow gate because they won't fit. So Jesus, in false pretenses, Jesus was very upfront when he evangelized people. He never desired to save someone who didn't understand what salvation meant. I mean, he challenged people. Look at the red letters all the time. Do you know what you, you, know what you want? I want eternal life. Okay, here's what you want. Here's what you're asking for. Oh, I don't want that. Well, then you don't want to be saved. But I want to go to heaven. Well, here's what it takes. I don't like the terms. Well, too bad. See how you like the terms in hell. He didn't want anyone jumping into the boat under false pretenses that would later on find out they weren't saved. This is precisely why he had so many battles with the Pharisees and the religious folks regarding his gospel. Jesus would present the full gospel to folks, and they would reject it. So he regularly walked away, knowing his seed had been sown on unfertile soil. So he walked away. He told parables about it up here on the board. There will always be people 
even so-called pastors, trying to obtain salvation through some other way than the gospel of Jesus Christ. Jesus knew this and was very adamant about presenting the full gospel so that all who heard it would be appropriately convicted. Again, false pretenses in view. There will always be people, even so-called pastors, trying to obtain salvation through some other way than the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's that different gospel. Jesus knew this and was very adamant about presenting the full gospel so that all who heard it would be appropriately convicted. That's what he wanted. Here's the terms and condition. What say your heart? Is it humble or is it arrogant? You choose. Go to John 10.1. John 10.1. But he's not going to lie and leave details out so that someone can be falsely convicted about something that's not the fullness of the gospel. Hey, wait a minute, I jumped in a boat. You didn't tell me I had to leave my self-life behind. I'm getting out of here. Well, that's the one with spurious faith. They jump in, they don't like it, they get out. That's the parable of the soils. They jump in, the details of life choke it out, they get out. They may, they may spend a little time in there, I don't, I don't like that, and they get out. Well, they're not saved. A truly saved person can't get out. But that's another thread. John 10.1 Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep, but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. See the visual, the imagery? But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So Jesus said to them again, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep, All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees. And the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd and I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father and I lay it down or lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason, the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. See, he doesn't want people not to understand those things. He wants them to understand what it means to be under a shepherd. A shepherd has authority over the sheep. That's called lordship. And you can't have two lords. 
You can't. You can't serve the Lord and wealth, for instance. So says the Word of God. You have one Lord. And this is the way it is. Therefore, to synthesize this morning's message with last week's closing, or with last week's in closing up here on the board, the full conditions of the gospel, before a person is even able to get into the boat, Jesus places the full gospel before them and says, Do you accept my terms? Do you accept me? Because this is who I am. Jesus says, You either accept all the terms of my gospel or none of them. It doesn't matter at that point. Jesus Christ habitually presented the gospel in full when he made co conditional statements like, Deny self, take up your cross. And follow me. That was the conditional statements all at once, in other words. This is what happens when you get in the boat. If you're not okay with these terms, then your heart's, heart's going to stay arrogant and you won't be saved. If you are okay with these terms, I, my spirit, will actually impart these things to you. You'll be able to believe, repent, have faith, all these kinds of things, because these things are true gifts from God. And I'll impart them to you. But your heart has to be ready, the soil, so to speak. So Jesus Christ habitually presented the gospel when he made co-conditional statements like that. For that is what it takes to get into the boat and be saved. So there is a counting the cost, unless Jesus Christ was a liar. It means that a heart must be presented with the fullness of the gospel so that it can make a decision that satisfies God's integrity. In other words, God doesn't want anybody trying to jump in the boat under false pretenses. He wants everybody to see the fullness of the gospel. And our job is to give it. That's the Great Commission. Our job is to get it right and then give people it so that they can believe with the integrity of God. Jesus was saying, trust me, the terms and conditions of the gospel, quote, contract are both fair and doable. God's honest truth. Arguably one of the greatest questions ever asked. Now concentrate. I'm ready to close here. Arguably one of the greatest questions ever asked, ever captured in the scriptures, was following the young rulers walking away, the camel and the needle. When Jesus said, you know, it's, this is why, this is what I'm saying. Not everybody wants me. Not everybody wants the, all the terms of the contract. They want to play this game. They want what I have to give, but they don't want to give up the old life. Their heart isn't open to that, to those conditions. And so he says that's why it's harder for a camel to go through the eye of a needle. Go to Matthew 19.25. Probably one of the greatest questions ever asked in the Bible by his disciples When the disciples, Matthew 19, 25, when the disciples heard this, that story, they saw the account, in other words, and then they heard Jesus' response to it. And he didn't hold any punches, did he? They were astonished and said, then who can be saved? Well, that's a really important question, isn't it? Then who can be saved? In other words, this seems a little bit, maybe even extreme to some degree. Then who can be saved then? 
Do you see it? I, I really hope you do. This is the questions, in many ways, of all questions, isn't it? Then who can be saved? <laughs> if these things, if Jesus Christ through all these like requirements, oh, no, 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 you don't get in the boat until you agree to these requirements of, regarding the gospel. Well, then who can be saved? So the question of all questions, especially in light of the seemingly offensive, to some, demands made by Jesus himself. And that's the problem. Everything's PC nowadays, isn't it? Everything's PC. I'm my own independent man. How dare you say, deny myself? How dare you present a gospel that says, repent? I don't repent. I like my life. I just want to go to heaven. That sounds like way better than hell. So, to some people, the very thought of offending, I've had this discussion with people too, well, what you're teaching could scare people. I know. That's part of the deal. Even with believers, it could get them, you know, concerned about their own salvation. So, good. If you have nothing to worry about, then you will be assured of your salvation. Fair? Good. What's the problem? Jesus didn't have any problem with it. Paul didn't have any problem with it. What's the problem then? Why, why would the gospel truth be offensive to you? Seriously, why would it be offensive to you then? You might have a problem then. Those are the only people who get offended by the gospel. The ones who don't want all the terms and conditions. I like the convenient gospel better. Well, you run with that, and we'll see how it works out in the end. But I have no problem with the fact that some might be offended, even listen to my voice right now, by the fullness of the gospel. No problem whatsoever. You know why? Because my Lord and Savior said those words. All I'm doing is reading from the Bible. If he says you've got to deny yourself before you can follow me, what am I going to say? Oh, he didn't mean it. Those actually weren't terms. Let me, let me hyper-doctrinalize that out for a little bit. Hold on, let me get my, my little scalpel. Let me cut that out and throw it out, and I'll put something from the New Testament completely out of context in, instead. And then you feel better? You feel better? Mm-hmm. You want a bottle? Mm-hmm. You, want your, you want your binky? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm offended. Too bad. Too bad. Join the crowd. How many people are offended by the gospel? Bazillions. That's a real term, too. Bazillions. And she's like, yeah, bazillions. Seriously, based on the simple statement, there are few who find it. Few kind of implies that there's probably more that don't. I'm just saying. So there's a lot of people that find the gospel offensive. It's not my problem. It only becomes my problem if I'm too much of a wimp to state it because our culture nowadays is so PC and I don't want to offend anyone. Well, too bad if you're offended. You're not offended with me, you're offended with truth. Anyways, getting a little passionate up here. Then who can be saved? Matthew 19, 25. Who can really deny self or take up their cross or hate his own father and mother without the supernatural help of God. No one. Thank God for grace. 
So the answer to that question is right on the heels. Who can be saved? Matthew 19, 26, with God all things are possible. Sounds like you're getting a little uh, human rationalism maybe in your soul. Maybe that's your problem, oh, theological giant you are. Maybe that's your problem. Maybe you forgot this simple thing. That God saves, not you. You don't save a single soul. God said from eternity past, I chose you and you and you and you and you because I saw your heart and I elected you. That's what it means to be saved, oh great ones. But in my human power, I don't want to be offensive and I want to make sure, you know, I evangelize and I, you know, it doesn't say with Joey all things are possible or Anthony or Scott or anybody. It says with God all things are possible. Who can be saved then? Jesus threw out these demands. So you have two choices. Either he was on crack. I don't think crack existed back then, so... Either he was lying or he was telling the truth. And when his disciples took offense to it, he said, listen, with God all things are possible. What's your point? God's going to save who he saves. End of story. And what he's really looking for is a humble heart. Now what, you're, what it took for you to repent, I don't know. Could have taken years, I don't know. What it takes for you to finally agree to the term? I don't know. But I do know that with God, all things are possible. So somehow, he'll get you saved if you have the heart for it. So stop henpecking all the details out of context. Matthew 19, 25. When the disciples heard this, they were very astonished and said, then who can be saved? And looking at them, Jesus said to them, with people, this is impossible. But with God, all things are possible. Therefore, in closing, if your heart is right, then God will give you the appropriate abilities to do whatever he's asking you to do. And that goes even not just at salvation, but in sanctification. He always precedes his commands with grace. You see, a grace-oriented person realizes this and rejoices and prays without ceasing and gives thanks always. If your heart is right, then you, God will give you the appropriate abilities to do whatever he's asking you to do. If, when presented with the gospel, we accept the terms and conditions, quote, unquote, of it with humble hearts, God will quicken and empower us to believe, repent, and have saving faith. That's what Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 points to. What's the problem? To close with the highlight of the boat analogy up here on the board, the gospel analogy, Jesus Christ, the builder, says, you're going to drown in your sins unless you get into the boat and leave everything behind. Trust me. I built the boat myself. It is seaworthy and able to save you. Trust me. My spirit will pull you into the boat with me. Don't worry about how. Trust me. Okay? Amen? Let's bow our heads. I'd like to dedicate the closing moments of today's message to those who are without Christ and therefore are without hope. 
John 3.16 states, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. If you are indeed without Christ at this moment, know this, have faith in this, and embrace this as solemn truth. Acts 16.31, Believe in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved, you and your household. If you believe that and you need a Savior, and you repent of your sinfulness and accept the free invitation now with a humble heart that Christ himself is your Lord and Savior and be saved. If you've just believed for the very first time, I'd like to welcome you to the family of God. Father, thank you again for this morning's message, for giving us this time of fellowship with like-minded believers so that we might be encouraged each by the other's faith, and that we might see it all as truth, Father. For it is in the light for your Son, our Lord and Savior, is the light that we see things clearly. What a precious grace gift spiritual sight truly is. For nothing else really matters when mere humans are able to partake in the divine. We pray again, Father, for those not here with us this morning, What a heartbreaking thing it is to ponder. But we know that you, Father, are with us all, whether present or absent. May we all be encouraged by your presence in our lives. May you bless all traveling from this local assembly. It's in Christ's precious name that we do pray by the power of the Spirit. Amen. Thank you.